Hi, this is Tim Kripe, founding host of This Week in Pediatric Oncology. Thank you for downloading this episode. I just want to warn you, however, that about 11 minutes into this episode, it sounds like all of us talking jump into a small tin can, and we're not sure what exactly happened. We're going to try to fix that for future episodes, but in compensation for that, I just wanted to let you know we'll be giving you a little special treat at the end with some interesting information about our logo and about our music that you might want to hear. So thanks for listening. This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 27, recorded here on July 2nd, 2013. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Oletta. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for being here. Oh, Thanks, Tim, for having me. And we also have a couple guests on today, very special people to us in the TWIPO world, Donna Ludwinski. Donna, thanks for being here. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure. And Scott Kennedy. Scott, thanks for being here. Hi, it's a pleasure to be a part of this and look forward to our conversation. So I have to apologize to our listening audience for being absent for a little over a year. As many of you know, I moved from Cincinnati Children's to Nationwide Children's Hospital and it's been tough to find time, frankly, but uh, we're hoping to revitalize the TWIPO conversations because a lot of exciting things are actually happening in the world of cancer in general and in pediatric oncology in particular. The success of our previous episodes were in large part due to support and uh, help from Solving Kids Cancer that was co-founded by Scott Kennedy, and Donna Lewinsky is very active in that organization as well, and so wanted to have a conversation with them today about uh, research advocacy and to discuss how important that is for the pediatric world especially. Again, for you listeners, if you don't remember from over a year ago, if you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, and even if you're listening to it a long time from now, please email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org and we'd happy to be happy to read your emails and discuss any questions during a future episode. Why don't we start with you, Scott? Can you uh, mind taking us back a little bit just to give us a brief history of you know, what got you interested in this and how you ended up forming Solving Kids Cancer? Sure. Thanks, Tim. Uh, it's all about my son, Hazen, who uh, was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, a difficult pediatric solid tumor. And uh, through the experience of caregiving for him, um, I aligned myself, did two things. One is became very well-versed and knowledgeable um, about tr- options to try to help him in many different ways. And secondly, um, built a community with other parents and established a structure where we would share resources and knowledge together to try to help all of our kids. And it ended up being something that um, we carried over into creating Solving Kids Cancer once um, I lost my son Hazen to pediatric cancer and I aligned myself their father, John London, who lost his daughter Penelope to the same cancer. And through our shared experiences and communication in the process of taking care of our kids, we did, decided to use that experience to try to help other families 
And the way we wanted to do that is creating an organization, and that's how we started Solving Kids Cancer. I'm very sorry for your loss, um, but I commend you for turning it into something positive, a positive force for, for helping other families. Um, your background was not in science or medicine, correct? I'm embarrassed to say that I was uh, very close to going to medical school, but then decided against it the day before taking the MCAT because I realized that I'm afraid of blood, guts, and tissue, so it wasn't for me, <laughs> but I enjoyed I enjoyed pursuing a pre-med, um, but I ended up finding myself in the pharmaceutical industry uh, after school and in a professional capacity, and... Uh, was able to use some of that experience in, uh, in a marketing function within pharmaceutical industry. I came from the Alzheimer's disease focus within uh, one of the large companies. Ah, so the opposite end of the spectrum, age. And, right. And what uh, what kinds of um, challenges did you find when you formed Solving Kids Cancer? The, the biggest challenge was trying to be a normal sort of non-profit and follow all those rules that you have to follow because you just wanted to jump ahead and get right into the work. But we have to also operate as a non-profit. So it's kind of coming down to earth a bit to be a, a, a responsible non-profit. Um, but one of the things I wanted to mention was that um, right away coming from the pharmaceutical industry, I was exposed to a wide variety of experiences in um, helping different types of patients. So it was really invaluable to have that background as a, as a starting point um, because I had sort of an insider's track both in that area as well as um, being a parent who is advocating and, and caregiving for their child. We can talk more about that, but I, I, I wanted Jeff to, to jump in here. Jeff, um, as one of the co-hosts, you're new to our, our episodes, but so could you just give a couple sentences about yourself, um, and then we can proceed with sort of the, the questioning. Thanks, Tim. Um, I came to Nationwide Children's of, uh, roughly about seven months ago from Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I'm a bone marrow transplant physician and the director of the Host Defense Program, which is a translational research platform defining the immune system in the context of infection, but also cancer. Um, I definitely wanted to uh, commend um, Mr. Kennedy with regards to initiative for his uh, son, as we definitely have to improve the event-free survival for high-risk neuroblastoma. Hi, Donna. Uh, if you Hi. can give a couple uh, words with regards to your involvement in solving kids' uh, cancer, that'd be helpful. Well, thank you. Uh, my son, uh, I also am a neuroblastoma parent, and uh, my background is in chemical engineering, which doesn't help me very much in terms of um, medical understanding. It's just that I'm not very intimidated to learn. So I spent um, the past eight years learning and reading and talking, as Scott elucidated, you know, the, the parent community, especially the, um, the ones who really do you know, leave every um, paper, I mean, you don't leave anything unread, um, you don't want to, you want to turn over every stone, that community really propelled um, taking it seriously and doing everything we could for our kids. So, as Scott and I became friends um, in, it was about 2005, 2006, when he was going through the battle with his son. Uh, mine eventually lost his battle in, in 2010, and then I came on um, staff with Solving Kids Cancer. So the, the real emphasis was in 
you know, having a good understanding of the research landscape and a good understanding of what the options are for the children and identifying gaps. Um, I, at one point, I had a spreadsheet with over a thousand kids on it, and you know, trying to learn their situations, their um, what their therapies were, what their outcomes were. It's it's obviously um, a, a it's a serendipitous type of approach to trying to learn, but the thing is you can, you can learn an awful lot about, um, you know, some of the approaches, some of the things that um, have worked and what hasn't worked. So that's, that's how I got interested, and that's why I'm still here. One of the things, Donna, that's amazed me about you since I've gotten to know you, although we did realize the other day that we've probably talked a thousand hours either on Skype or on the phone and never met in person, but... Um, as I've gotten to know you as best one can digitally, uh, is how well you've come to understand the very science behind different trials and keep pace with with everything that's going on. I can't imagine that that you would have been able to do that while your son was going through treatment. Um, but do you have advice for other parents about how to how to handle all this massive information that must be coming at them on a daily basis? How to sort through and filter through what's important? Yeah, this is a very good question. Um, Scott and I both get asked a lot of questions along those lines from parents who maybe don't have the aptitude to look uh, deeply into, say, the statistics of a particular study to see if that's significant. So a lot of times we'll be asked to help with that. So I, I agree, you know, there isn't a universal aptitude for this. Um, however, for those of us who do, we're glad to help uh, parents you know, figure out those things and provide resources. And so we're constantly looking to fill that gap. Um, obviously, there's an enormous amount of information that is available. It's, it's figuring out um, how to apply it to your situation and, and, and figuring out truly what is meaningful um, for, for decisions that we make for our children. So, so you're right. And when you're in the thick of the battle, it's, it's not easy. But there are parents like Scott and I, and we, we have several friends who were just like us and literally spent day and night um, trying to learn what we could. It, it doesn't, doesn't mean that you necessarily find the answers. What, what it does mean, though, is that you understand how to make the, uh, hopefully the best course of action, uh, given what you know at that time. So, And how, at this point, how much time does it take out of your daily life and for there's a question for both of you I guess to to be advocates for research and I know you want to do it 150 percent if not more but uh, in reality how much does it take and how do you manage that well Scott Good question. It, 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 the easiest way to say it's it's a full-time effort so um, you have to stay sort of organized and focused or you can get overwhelmed because there's so many places to look um, and that's one of the things that we've been able to do over the past few years. I also wanted to mention something special about Donna is that her son was diagnosed at a, at a young age, which is normal for neuroblastoma, but then he had an extended period of remission and then relapsed much later. So she's been in the game, so to speak, for how many years has it been, Donna? Oh, More than 15 years? Yeah, 1991. So it's been over 20 years. Wow. Yeah, and that's amazing. Sure is. And we're, we're so, of course, sorry for your loss as well, Donna. It's, uh, like we, both Jeff and I have kids, and we can't imagine going through what you guys have gone through. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. 
So along uh, the lines of, of Tim's uh, questioning, so I uh, happened to be involved in a, in a parent advocacy group at, uh, in Northeast Ohio, and we formed our own um, 503C, a nonprofit organization. So what, what you're talking about actually hits home uh, to me based upon parents that were involved with regards to their children with a variety of oncologic diagnoses. And one of the one of our hopes in during that organization is exactly what uh, solving kids' cancer is hitting upon, which is information uh, in the sense of dissemination as well as uh, availability. And um, you know, one of the things that we focused on in, in it together was providing a kind of a social support network with regards to um, the family units uh, for siblings as well as relatives and, and significant others in terms of obviously the cancer diagnosis permeates through the entire family and as well as the social network and being able to provide uh, social support and, and information and even for friends of the child in terms of like how do you interact with the child with cancer, how does that child go to school and interact, and how do family members uh, perceive the child with cancer and not keep them in a, in a glass bubble. So I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about uh, your experiences with regards to families and being able to, to obviously identify with them in terms of this uh, and help them through that process. Oh, that's a very good question. I, I do think that um, some of the larger hospitals are, are naturally set up to create um, good networks for some of that because... You know, when you're interacting with other families, especially for siblings, they need really flesh and blood experiences. You know, uh, having Facebook friends or listers and that sort of thing doesn't necessarily help. Um, I, I think, at least my experience with my own children, they appreciated um, meeting other siblings at the hospitals and so on. I, I think the same goes for the patients. Um, they, you know, the camps that are provided and um, some of those opportunities really can be um, phenomenal in impact. Uh, so I, I think those are, are fantastic. And, and so from the Solving Kids Cancer perspective, we love to provide, um, you know, show parents where to find sources like that if their hospital doesn't necessarily um, point those out. But, but our experience is that most of the larger ones have very good programs for that. And so I, I agree, it's, it's incredibly important. What is the major, I mean, it sounds like Selvic Kids Cancer is trying to um, provide a lot of psychosocial support as well as research advocacy. What do you see, Scott, as the group's major mission and and how do you sort that out from trying to be everything to all people? Yeah, that's a, a very good point. I think that at this point, since we've been around, we turned the five-year mark now. At the beginning, there was a bit of trying to do everything for everybody because there's so many things to do, as you know. But at this point, we're able to sort of see um, a, a clear light and a clear path. What we um, inevitably do well is try to use research to help improve survival. At the five-year mark where, we at, where we're at now, we're able to see clearly, you know, where we can make a difference in where we have impact and where we have strong capabilities. So for us, it's really about using research to, to help patients. And, and our responsibility is, as a funder is to do that the best way we can. As far as um, what we do and what our, our mission is, it's, it is to be a philanthropic force 
to improve survival for pediatric cancers that we focus on, which are some of the more challenging ones, neuroblastoma, as we've discussed, brain tumors, and sarcomas. We feel that we can have the best impact by providing funding and then using the funding along with research advocacy, which is somewhat different than patient advocacy. It's more about the research and how it can be better to help patients. And what we can do is sort of an equal voice to help oncologists or pediatric oncologists help patients better as well. Where we're at now being a funding source and then an advocacy source at the same time. So let's talk a little bit more about that research advocacy piece. What what does it form does it take? Do you go out and march on Washington? Do you I mean what what kinds of concrete things can you do and how can other say our listeners get involved? That's a fantastic question. And even within the pediatric oncology community, our, you know, fellow parents and some other charities, the concept of research advocacy is still a little bit of a mystery. It, rolling back the clock a little, um, in the 80s, the first group that really established this as, I mean, I don't know if they even use the term research advocacy, but they certainly were the first, were the HIV advocates. Um, this was pre-internet, and this, they had a sense of urgency. There were um, people who learned the science. They um, brought patients and money to the table and said, we'd like to influence um, the way the, the trials are designed. And if you work with us, you know, we, we can supply patients and money. And so that was when this concept really was born, the first time uh, there were patients involved in some of these decisions. Um, the, the best known group now that is doing this successfully are the breast cancer research advocates. Um, they have a boot camp that is like none other to train research advocates. They learn all about clinical trial design. They learn the um, core science um, concept. And um, just to let you know, I met one at ASCO. She had a PhD in biomedical engineering, and she had a hard time getting accepted into the boot camp. So very high standards. Um, obviously, many are heavily trained in science, and so the, the point is they learn to analyze the research landscape, learn to identify gaps, learn to um, keep an eye on promising um, agents, promising um, approaches, and, and instigate some of those conversations with clinicians and, and do some matchmaking with um, basic scientists and in our case, it would be pediatric oncologists. So this activity is, is fairly rare in the, the pediatric oncology world. It's not that it's not happening at all. It's just a, a kind of a new concept within our realm. Other disease areas, though, this has been going on a long time. So, Donna, it's, it's Jeff again. I, I think um, I, I think you, Scott, Tim, and myself know the answer to this question, but for the listeners, you mentioned a gap in terms of pediatric research. I, I think one of the things to do is to appreciate that the National Cancer Institute has a budget, and there's a, a, a very small fraction of that budget goes to pediatric cancer research, you know, less than 5%. So we all know that pediatric cancer is the number one disease killer of children, and it just seems out of proportion to have an NCI budget of less than 5% for the number one disease killer of children. And and obviously, I, I think that that's a huge motivation for, you know, solving kids with uh, cancer as well as um, a lot of these groups. 
But uh, based upon the general audience that they may be listening, I, I think that's the huge gap that often is the elephant in the room that, that goes unsaid and, and unappreciated. Yeah, and a lot of us aren't afraid to talk about it, but uh, it is an elephant in the room in certain audiences. So we definitely yell and scream, and many other parent groups do too. It's really a shame that you have to, for one, but it's also amazing that this this whole, even for breast cancer, that it has to be a boot camp and an army and that we even have to do all this advocacy. But I guess it's something we just have to accept that is needed because everybody wants a piece of the pie. Uh, Donna did a very good description of, of the origins of it and, and, and also the successes of it because both groups um, have been successful in their efforts to improve research and, and improve outcomes too, which is what we all want to do at the end of the day. So in cancer and in pediatric cancer, those are both big areas that also warrant this type of effort. One of the challenges is that there isn't such a training program or a structure for it in pediatric cancer. There's just, uh, you know, some of us that come along and, and sort of fit the role, and that's Donna and I as well as some others we, we work with too. What we're trying to do is, is create sort of a, a map forward to provide this as a, as a more beneficial structure and to create some um, a plan around it, basically, or some specific initiatives that we can do so that we can increase the numbers and, and train more people because it's a big group effort that not just solving this cancer um, can, can help, but it, it takes a whole community. So we need to sort of shift into um, research advocacy mode more and more. And one of the challenges that we have, because pediatric oncology is a group of diverse diseases, um, you know, we have 12 major subtypes of pediatric cancer, and these um, are very different. So if you know the history of, you know, all of the treatments that have been tried in a particular type, you know what's currently happening and what movement is toward going, you know, toward the future, that doesn't mean you know about the other 11 subtypes. So that's why we require a network. Um, we, we are pretty well versed in neuroblastoma, but not so well versed in, say, osteosarcoma. And so so one of our challenges, because pediatric oncology includes so many different disease types, is to network with other parents like us who have a uh, little bit of a science aptitude, but more important than that is spending an awful lot of time learning the research landscape for their particular tumor type. So that means they know what has been done, what is being done. And what is, what's the current focus? What direction is the research going? This way, we can inform each other, especially as charities that are funding research, uh, the, the research is, is appropriate um, for the context for that disease. In other words, if, if some drugs have been tried and, and found to not be so spectacular, we'd probably shy away from that particular direction, whereas something that looks really intriguing and provocative in, and hasn't been tried before, that's something we'll be interested in moving toward. So the the research advocacy activity is, is really just building a knowledge base for each of those disease areas. And, and that's what's a little different about research advocacy as opposed to, as Scott mentioned before, uh, patient advocacy. That's really serving um, the, the patients and their families, and we're more interested in uh, you know, what the, the, the current and future direction of the research for each of those tumor types. 
So talking about all the different tumor types, and it, it, it brings to mind the fact that, you know, it seems like every day a new foundation pops up from a parent. I mean, there's thousands of them around the country that are trying to fund different efforts and various diseases. Has there been an effort to coalesce or coordinate these various groups to try to be a more powerful voice or a more a better advocate? Yes, as a matter of fact, you're right. There's been many failed attempts in the past, and and right now it looks like um, there is some momentum uh, for success in that direction. There's a, a group um, that just recently had their inaugural meeting in, in Washington, D.C. last month, and the, the goal is to be able to share uh, resources and information and services so that you know uh, which foundations are, say, providing camps and which ones are providing uh, patient support. Uh, and also you'll know who's uh, funding what kind of research. So our our hope is that that, um, you know, that momentum will continue and there will be some coordinated effort and it's going to be successful in terms of uh, really being a more effective group as a whole. Does that group have um, a name yet? Uh, it's called CAC2. It's the Coalition Against Childhood Cancer. I think that you hit it right on the head, Donna, and, that, and, and Tim and, and Scott, too, that one of the things that, that's crucial for the success in, in terms of measured with regards to longevity and quality of life is that we're able to pool our resources but not duplicate effort, uh, in particular with regards to uh, uh, everything that we've just talked about. And I think that uh, one of the hallmarks of, of being able to that is, is, is truthfully the altruism of people like yourselves that have, uh, have had firsthand experience with regards to childhood cancer and want to better the, the outcomes for the future uh, children diagnosed with the disease. And to be able to, to do that uh, in such a, a great way is truly commendable. Uh, Thank you. We're, we're starting to run a little long, I think. So um, what kind of final words would each of you like to say or um, comment, or where do you think the future lies or the challenges that you need to focus on? I'll start because I'm the longest and Donna will summarize at the end. <laughs> but I, I, I think that the, it is difficult to have a collaboration or coordination of the charity, but I think that we, we keep trying, we keep talking. It's a good thing, and I think eventually we'll get there and uh, some of the ways that we see that opportunities exist is that charities that identify and know exactly what they do can line up with other charities that do the same thing. You have to have sort of a, a natural affinity with a few different charities, and then that's how that collaboration works. I think it's got to be natural and not a forced one. So I think along the research advocacy line, there's a lot of potential for growth um, in, in providing more research advocacy and, again, bringing in more parents and other sort of caregivers that, that have a voice in research advocacy. That uh, I think the real opportunities will be where we have all the disease types represented and we're able to take care of our different tumor types but also work together as a, as a network for the whole of childhood cancer. I, I would agree with that. that that's exactly what Scottline would like to see happen is to encourage further growth and movement in this direction. We would really like to see the network expanded and and to see an effort to support those who are interested in research advocacy like in the other disease types we mentioned before. Um, they've these have become, you know, very potent groups in terms of not just influencing research but being leaders 
in terms of identifying patient needs and, um, you know, perspectives. And especially when it comes to clinical trial design, sometimes it affects the eligibility. Um, sometimes it's, it's just identifying, you know, certain things that should be done at certain times that that no one else really noticed that that gap exists. So we're very excited about seeing that um, that approach expanded. Thank you for all your your work in this area. There needs to be a lot more done, and I think uh, it's possible that our listeners may have a lot of other questions or, or want us to talk about this issue more, and I think we actually have another scheduled session to talk about research advocates, especially with respect to um, Department of Defense funding. So at this point, why don't we close it up? I will encourage our listeners to, to either communicate with you, either of you guys at, at solvingkidscancer.org, or to email us questions at twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. Of course, they can follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast and sign up for automatic notification for new episodes, which hopefully will be more common this year than they have been in the past. I do want to thank Victor Aguilar, our sound engineer, Jeff Thurston, our technical engineer, uh, for helping us with this episode. And uh, thanks to Jenny Song, Director of Communications at Solving Kids Cancer, for helping organize these uh, podcasts. Uh, and to you guys, of course, for uh, for turning something negative into uh, what is, is clearly a positive uh, that is Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Um, so thank you guys for all of your hard work, and thank you for being with us today. Um, and to share your thoughts. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much, Tim. I'd like to apologize for the deteriorating sound quality of the episode today. Not sure what happened. We're using some new equipment, and it sounded fine for a while, and then it went bad on us, and we tried to remix it as best as possible, and we'll try to figure out what went wrong and not have it happen again in future episodes. But as compensation for listening through it, I'd like to give you a little bit of a treat, and that is to let you know how uh, our music came to be and our logo came to be for this week in pediatric oncology. The music that you hear at the beginning and at the end was actually composed by Donna's son, Eric. And I think you'll agree that he was quite a talented musician. The piece that we selected was from a tune he labeled Star Fountain. And I think you can tell that it has sort of that mystical cosmic quality hence the star name, and much of the piece, sort of the music kind of drapes like a fountain. Uh, and so I think it's very aptly named, but it gives you a sampling of how talented he, he was and and really what, what this earth has lost with his passing away. And in addition, our logo was designed by Donna's daughter, Lisa, uh, who's now married named is, is Lisa Wilson. Congratulations. And uh, we're very thankful for her uh, lending her talented artistic hand to our designing our logo. It actually is a caricature of her brother Eric, um, as he might appear uh, dressed as a physician doing a podcast. So um, I want to thank uh, Don and her family for all their generosity and creativity. Quite a talented family. Again, apologies for the sound quality, but remember the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.